Nice to be here. And today we're reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that, when, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God, the, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And, when, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Thank you, Angel. Good morning, everyone. Oh, it's good to be here with you this week. I feel like I'm very far forward today. <laughs> We're having some technical issues with the computer, so hopefully the slides will come up at some point. But if not, it's okay. Uh, we, last week, started a new series for the season of Lent. If you don't know, Lent is a season leading up to Easter where the church prepares to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. And during the Lent season, the churches of Hong Kong have what we call the One Campaign. One Campaign has a Bible reading plan. There's an app that you can download to join this Bible reading plan, and it'll take you through the book of Matthew as we lead up to Easter. And then along with that, many churches in Hong Kong are doing a sermon series looking at the book of Matthew and seeing how Matthew shows us that Jesus is the Messiah in the book of Matthew. And he shows us that, that Jesus is the promised rescuer that God throughout the Old Testament said he was going to send to his people. And so we are joining that series. Last week, we started the series. We looked at the temptation of Jesus, and we saw that Jesus is the promised rescuer because he's able to stand up to the temptations of Satan and say no to them. Despite the fact that they're really powerful temptations, that they appeal to the deepest desires of the human heart, Jesus has a deeper desire to love and honor God. And that lets him say no to Satan's temptation. And once he's said no to this temptation, he's withstood the enemy, he's ready to go out and start his ministry in public. And today we see the start of that public ministry. 
And as we look at today's passage, we're going to see that as Jesus moves forward, he calls us to follow him. As Jesus moves forward, he calls us to follow him. And we'll see that there's no one like him. We'll look at what makes him unique and then his invitation to us. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this chance to gather and worship you. We thank you for your word and that it shows us who you are, that it shows us who Jesus is, that we can know him and trust him and follow him. We pray that during our time together today that you'd be at work in our hearts, helping us to see more clearly who he is and trust him more deeply and follow him with our whole hearts and our whole lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see today is that there is no one like him. I don't know if you felt this way during the scripture reading today, but as I was looking at the passage this week, it just feels like it jumps around a little bit. Like there's this scene, it's it's a series of mini scenes. Jesus moves to a new town and then it says he fulfills prophecy and then he goes on a walk and he finds some guys and he uh, calls them to be his disciples and they come with him and then he goes out and he starts teaching and preaching around the region and doing all these different miracles and lots of people come out to follow him. And one of the things that really stuck out to me in the midst of all these snapshots is that we see from this passage that there is no one like Jesus. And it shows us this in many ways, but one of the clearest things that sticks out to me that shows that there is no one like Jesus happens right in the middle of the passage. In the middle of this passage, not once, but twice, Jesus walks up to a pair of brothers. He tells them, come follow me. And they drop everything immediately and go follow him. These encounters, I don't know if, you, if you've realized this, but these encounters show there's something incredibly unique about Jesus. Because he just walks up to these guys, invites them to follow him, and they drop everything to go with him immediately. Like, let me ask you, imagine tomorrow you are at work or at home looking after the kids or whatever it is you do on a Monday, and someone walks up to you and they say, I want you to leave life as you know it behind and just come with me wherever I go. Anyone who's like, I'm in. No, that's a weird thing to do, right? I mean, I can't think of anything that would make me immediately say yes. I can think of lots of things that would make me immediately say no. But I cannot think of anything that would make me immediately say yes. For me to even consider it, I would have so many questions to think through. Like, who is this person? What is their character and reputation like? Are they a trustworthy person? Where are they going? Like, where do they want me to go with them? What's going on with them financially? Are they homeless? Are they a billionaire? I think if they're homeless, that might be a red flag. Like, where is this person mentally and emotionally? Are they like totally with it? Are they on drugs that are going to mess with their brain and make it weird to follow them? What happened to other people who followed them? Like, do they generally turn out doing better because they followed this person or do they end up in some big trouble? And all these considerations, they take time to think through. I could not say yes in a moment immediately. For lots of people, I could say no in a moment immediately, but I could not say yes immediately. And even if 
I took a long time and I thought it through and I finally decided, yes, this person is worth dropping everything to follow and go with them. This person would have to be utterly extraordinary for me to come to that conclusion. Right? Like, I like my job, I like Hong Kong, I love my family, Justine is my favorite person on the planet. You know, I'm not going to leave all that behind for someone who's slightly above average. I'm not going to leave all that behind for someone who's well above average. The only thing that would make me consider doing that is for someone who is utterly unique and unlike anyone I've ever met in my life. And yet, when Jesus comes up to these four men, Despite everything it's going to cost them, despite everything they have to give up and leave behind, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they all say yes to Jesus' invitation. They leave everything and they follow him and they do it immediately without even stopping to think about it. Like I said, I can't think of any circumstance where I would do that with someone. I'm guessing most of you couldn't either. There's something utterly unique and extraordinary about Jesus. There's nothing like him. And it's not like life was totally miserable for these four guys and they were just looking for any excuse to try something new. We know from other passages that Peter is married at this point. We don't have any indication that it was a bad marriage. And so <clears throat> saying yes to Jesus means that he's not going to see his wife as often anymore. Peter and Andrew, they have jobs in a trade that they've probably been working in for years. They've built up skills. They've got a, a solid job. They're leaving that behind. James and John are working for a family business that their father has, and it seems to be affording them a comfortable middle to upper class lifestyle. Like they own a boat, uh, probably multiple boats. So they're walking away from financial stability. That's a huge risk. And with James and John, at least, they're leaving their father behind, right? Ancient Israel was kind of like many parts of Asia today, where a son is a parent's retirement account, right? You have sons so that when you're old and you can't work, they can take care of you. And James and John, they're walking away from that cultural expectation that they're going to look after their parents. They're not even stopping to think about whether that's the right choice. Can you imagine a son doing that in a traditional Asian family? It's like, see you, dad. You're on your own now. That would be unheard of. And even more shockingly, their father is right there with them and he lets them go. Like, it's not like, hey guys, maybe think twice about this. You sure you want to do this? You know, it's your job to take care of me as I get older and I'm not that young anymore. Clearly, their father also sees that Jesus is utterly unique and extraordinary, that his sons have to take this opportunity to follow this man. He's so convinced of it that he's willing to just let his retirement account walk out the door and say nothing to try to stop it. These are huge sacrifices. It's a huge risk that each of them is taking, and none of them even stops to think about whether it's worth it. All of them respond immediately. Peter and Andrew, when Jesus sees them, they're throwing a net into the water. They don't even stop to take the net out of the water. They're just like, see ya, leave their past life behind completely and go with Jesus. Which tells me that Jesus is utterly unique among anyone who ever lived. No one else could inspire this type of response. 
And so it's worth asking, what is it about Jesus that makes him so unique? So let's see what makes him unique. And this passage shows two big things about Jesus that make him unique. One is his teaching, and second is his healing. First, it talks about him going around and teaching and preaching in this area. It shows that he has this powerful teaching and preaching ministry that starts during this time. And what is it that he's teaching about? Well, it says he's teaching about God's kingdom. What is God's kingdom? It's a big, complex question. We have a children's Bible. We, we read to our kids at nighttime before bed. And <clears throat> the children's Bible says God's kingdom is wherever God is king. It's a very simple answer that needs a lot of unpacking. But I think it's a, a helpful starting point. Because when you think about this idea, God's kingdom is wherever God is king. Like on one level, God's king over everything. But on another level, he rules in a special way in the hearts of his followers. God's kingdom is something that came to earth through Jesus because Jesus was God living on earth. And so Jesus brings God's kingdom through his teaching that tells us what God's kingdom is like, but also more importantly, through his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus brings God's kingdom in a way that allows you and me to join in and become part of it. God's kingdom, it came through Jesus and it's here now, but only partially because God is ruling and reigning in the lives of his followers. But there are huge parts of our hearts and of our world that don't recognize God's rule as king. So there are elements of God's kingdom that are here already today and elements that we're not gonna see until the future that haven't yet arrived. But the promise of the Bible is that one day, God's kingdom is going to come in such a way that, that everything we experience is perfect for eternity, that it will come in full and that, that we'll get to live in it forever if we trust in Jesus. And so as Jesus shows up on the, on the scene, he tells people God's kingdom is coming near because God himself has now come to live among us. And he says, this is good news. He calls it the gospel of the kingdom. Gospel means good news. The fact that God's kingdom is coming near to us is incredibly good news. But it's good news that requires a response. That's why in verse 17, when he starts preaching, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's announcing God's kingdom has come to earth but in order to, to join in what God is doing, it requires a change in the way that you live. And the specific change is called repentance. Repentance, what does that mean? It means turning away from the things that keep us from God and turning to God instead. And it has two steps. First is just recognize what I am doing is wrong, changing our mind about it, saying we're sorry, trusting in God. But then part two, is living differently because of that. Step one is a change of mind. Step two is a change of action. So for example, say that someone is stealing money from their company and every, money, every day they take a little bit of money and add it to their own finances instead of their company finances. And one morning they wake up and they realize what I've been doing is wrong. So they pray and they're like, God, I'm so sorry. I know I shouldn't do this anymore. I know it's wrong of me. And then they go into work that day and they take more money. 
Has that person repented? No. They got halfway there. They, they recognized that what they were doing is wrong, but there's no change in action to go with it. The change of mind doesn't lead to a change in action, but Jesus says, <clears throat> repent, have a change of mind that leads to a change in action. And why is it that God's kingdom coming to earth makes this repentance necessary? Well, because at its core, sin is a rejection of God's kingship. Sin, it's not first and foremost bad things that we do. It's first and foremost this attitude that says, God, don't tell me how to live my life. I will make better choices for myself if I'm in charge than you will if you're in charge. Let me do what I want and things will be better. It's saying, God, you're not a good king. You don't deserve to be on the throne. Get off, let me on, and everything will be better in life. And we only do bad things because we first have this attitude in our hearts. If we're living with this attitude that God is king, God has authority, God is good, God, his kingdom is what's most important, then we're going to do the things that he tells us to do. We're not going to lie. We're not going to steal. We're not going to cheat on our spouse. We're not going to murder. It's only when we ignore his authority and try to be the kings and queens of our own lives that we end up doing these wrong actions. And Jesus is saying, if God's kingdom has come to earth and we want to be part of it, then we need to stop living in ways that oppose God's kingship and start, and start living in ways that recognize and affirm that kingship of God in our lives. And that starts with repentance, turning away from our attempts to be the ruler. And you can't really see this in English, but in the original language, this command to repent, it's a continuous command. So that means you don't do it once. It's not like I repent once to become a Christian, then I move on from repentance to, to better, more important, deeper theological things. Actually, what Jesus is saying is that if you want to follow him, if you want to be someone who's living in God's kingdom, the lifestyle that marks that type of person is a lifestyle of continual repentance. Day by day, we keep doing it continuously every day. It's about growing deeper in our love for God each day, continually turning away from the things that keep us from him and turning back to him instead. And this is so important because our hearts are constantly trying to steal that authority from God. The fight to recognize God as king of our lives rather than to rule it ourselves, it's a fight that is continuously ongoing in the hearts of every single person that wants to follow Jesus. So if, if we want to live as citizens of God's kingdom, if we want to be people who follow Jesus, one of the traits that should mark our lives is continuous repentance, continually turning away from the things that keep us from God and turning back to him instead, turning away <clears throat> from holding on to bitterness and anger and instead learning to love and forgive, turning away from selfishness and towards generosity, turning away from pride and towards humility. And this isn't something we do in order to earn God's love or make him love us. The ability to do this in the first place is a gift from God. He's setting us free from this false sources of life that the world promises us and giving us true life instead. And like I said, doing this will be a continual fight as long as we're alive. If we're trying to follow God, it's going to be a struggle because we're living in this time where the kingdom is here in part, 
but not in full. We're, if you're a Christian, you're a citizen of God's kingdom who lives in the middle of the world's broken kingdom. The Bible talks about Christians as exiles, strangers, aliens, living in a place that's not their true home, their citizenship. So we're constantly surrounded by messages telling us true life is found outside of God. It's a constant battle. God's kingdom, it's, it's here now, but not fully here. And he promises that one day it will be here in full. We'll live with him in that perfect kingdom forever. But until then, to live as a citizen of God's kingdom in the midst of the world, it's a daily battle. But it's one that Jesus calls his followers to continually keep fighting. And so we see this teaching in this passage. And that's one of the things that this passage shows us that sets Jesus apart as unique, his teaching and his preaching. The other thing we see in the passage that sets Jesus apart as totally unique is his healing. Jesus travels through the region. He's teaching, but he's also healing people. In fact, he's so powerful and successful as a healer that he becomes a bit of a celebrity in the region. People come from all around to find him. They bring him their sick people and he heals them all. Everything that's brought to him, sickness and pain and demon oppression and people having seizures and paralysis and whatever else they might bring, he heals it all. There's no one like him. And two quick notes on the healing. First, the healing that Jesus brings, it's the Holy Spirit bearing witness that Jesus really has been sent by God, that he really is a messenger of God's kingdom, bringing God's kingdom here to earth. It's a sign so that people can know God's kingdom is here right now. It's, it's come close to you because God is setting things right that are broken in the world. Yes, it's in a temporary way, but he's fixing what's broken in the world. Which raises an important question for us if, if we want to be followers of Jesus today. And it's this, if we're, if we're living as part of God's kingdom, what does the healing of Jesus mean for us today? And I think on one level, I know on one level, Jesus is totally unique, right? Like there's no one like him. We should not expect that every single sickness that comes our way, we should be able to, to heal it and fix it and make it all better. But at the same time, healing is a huge mark of God's kingdom. So if we're Christians, if we're, if we're wanting to be followers of Jesus, living as citizens of God's kingdom, part of what that means is working towards healing in our world. So that could involve things like praying for God to heal sick people, we as a church have been praying for our supportive missionary, Ida, as she battles lung cancer for many months. Um, that's, that's part of what that means is, is praying for God's miraculous healing in situations like that. But it can also involve working and serving to bring healing to broken structures in our community. Things like caring for widows and orphans. Things like helping refugees with their daily needs. Providing after school tutoring for underprivileged kids from the community spending time with couples going through difficult times in their marriages and trying to encourage them and work towards healing and strengthened marriages. All these things are things that culturally fit in the culture of God's kingdom. And they're the types of things that God wants to do through his people to bring healing in the world today. Jesus brings healing and it's a sign that God's kingdom has come near. But the second thing to see about 
the healing that Jesus brings is that his healing supports his teaching. He doesn't just do healing for the sake of healing. The healing in itself is not enough. What the healing does is it gets people in the door so they can hear his teaching and receive this invitation to enter God's kingdom. It's meant to point people to this reality of who Jesus is so they can put their faith in him. At other points in his ministry, Jesus actually tells people who have received this healing that if you get my healing, but you don't trust in me as a result of it, you're going to end up worse off than you started. Which means, again, if we today are aiming to live faithfully as citizens of God's kingdom, and we're trying to spread this healing in our world, we need to remember that healing on its own is not the biggest thing that people need. What people need is Jesus. Now, we should still love and serve even if it doesn't give us a direct opportunity to share about Jesus with words in that moment. But when we have the chance, our healing, our service, it's at its most powerful when it comes with words that teach people about the God who loves them and that point them towards him. God's goal isn't just to make people's lives more comfortable for a few years here on earth before they die outside of his kingdom. His goal is to use the love and the service of his people to bring others into his kingdom so they can experience this true abundant life that's found in following him. It's what he was doing through Jesus and it's what he wants to do through us today. And for those who, who do trust in Jesus, who want to follow him, who want to live as citizens of God's kingdom, Jesus gives an invitation to each of us. He gave an invitation to the people in this passage. He's giving an invitation to you and me today. Let's see his invitation to us. Because the reality is, <clears throat> Jesus is still moving forward in our world today. His kingdom is still advancing. He's still teaching us through his word and the Holy Spirit. And he's still inviting people like you and me to follow him. But as we mentioned at the start, the invitation to follow Jesus, it's a scary invitation. It involves sacrifice and risk. That was true for Peter, Andrew, James, and John. It's true for you and me. Following Jesus involves stepping out into the unknown. It doesn't necessarily involve leaving family and jobs behind today, although for some people it might. But even if you keep your job and stay near your family, following Jesus, it involves changes in how we live. Changes that often make no sense to our world. Right? The Bible calls citizens of God's kingdom to live in a way that makes zero sense to people who aren't citizens of God's kingdom. So one example, the Bible calls Christians not to have sex outside of marriage and not to look at porn. Right? If, if you were to talk to at least most of the non-Christians that I know, if you were to tell them that you're trying to live that way, especially if you're single and you're trying to live that way, most of them would either laugh at you because you're so old-fashioned, or look at you like you have two heads because that makes no sense to them. Like, why would anyone do that? But those aren't the only things that God calls citizens of his kingdom to do that make no sense to the world. The Bible also calls Christians to marry other Christians, not non-Christians. So if you're a Christian and you're dating someone who's not a Christian, there's a good chance that God's calling you to break off that relationship. If you're already married, it says to stay in that marriage. But if you're dating and you haven't already made that lifelong commitment, the Bible says don't get into that lifelong commitment with a non-Christian. Again, this doesn't make sense to non-Christians. 
And these are just a couple examples in the realm of sex and relationships. But God also calls citizens of his kingdom to work and study with integrity. Like students, if you have exams coming up, God calls you to study with integrity. He calls Christians to seek to love and serve others and not put themselves first. He calls us to be honest, even when it's going to cost us. He calls us, except in cases of infidelity or abandonment, he calls Christians to stay committed in marriage no matter how tough it might be. Right? The list can go on and on. These things are all part of the process of following Jesus, living as citizens of God's kingdom. And they're things that make no sense to the outside world. Living in these ways is a sacrifice because it means giving up and missing out on things that our world tells us are part of the good life. Following Jesus involves risk for us just like it did for Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Because just like them, if we start to follow Jesus and he doesn't turn out to be who we thought he was, we're missing out on the good life by following him. But the reality we see, the more we get to know Jesus, is that rearranging our lives so that they align with the culture of God's kingdom, it's not saying no to the good life. It's saying no to a cheap imitation of the good life in order to grab hold of the real thing. It's saying no to a McDonald's cheeseburger in order to save space in your stomach for a Michelin star steak. Because the more we get to know him, the more we get to know Jesus, the more we get to know that what he's saying is true. There really is more joy and, and contentment to be found in committed sacrificial love than in constantly keeping ourselves free to do what we want. It really is more blessed to give than to receive. Life really does work best and leads to the greatest joy and blessing when we put Jesus at the center rather than ourselves but it can still be really, really scary to choose to follow him. Like earlier in the sermon, I mentioned questions that I'd have to answer before I would consider leaving everything to follow someone like Peter, Andrew, James, and John do. And not every question gets answered in this passage or throughout the gospels, but some of them that do get answered, I wouldn't be very comfortable with the answer of. Like I said, I would wanna know whether someone's homeless or a billionaire. Like Jesus throughout his ministry is homeless. I, I, that would be a red flag for me. I don't know about you. Thankfully, God provides for all his needs. Um, <clears throat> he's never lacking. But if we're following someone who goes throughout his life homeless, that means that the experience of following him is always going to be an adventure. There's going to be lots of uncertainty along the way. Yes, God will provide, but we are often not going to know how that's going to happen until it happens. I also said I'd want to know their character or their reputation before I followed someone. And that is one area where we get really reassuring and clear answers about Jesus. Because Jesus has the greatest character of anyone in history. There's no one like him. He's everything I wish I could be in life. Like, you think about Jesus, there is no social situation you can put him in that will make him anxious. Like literally, you put him in the middle of any crowd, even one that wants to kill him for no reason and is calling for him to be murdered. He's not stressed. He's not anxious. He's totally calm. 
He doesn't feel the need to pretend to be someone else in order to make them happy. Like, don't you wish you could be more like that? Just totally calm, not anxious in any social situation? Jesus is completely filled with compassion and love for people. He regularly crosses across barriers that society says you don't cross in order to show love to people. He never judges people just based on external appearances. He always takes the time to see underneath the surface and get to know people who they really are. Every time Jesus opens his mouth, his words are dripping with wisdom and deep insights about God and the world. He's a living embodiment of what it means to live life empowered by God's spirit. And he is the most sacrificially loving person who ever lived. Like the whole point of the cross is that Jesus died so that his enemies could have life. That's the point of the cross. Jesus died so that his enemies could have life. He died to save his own murderers. There's no greater, deeper love than that. His character checks out. There is no one like him. If I'm going to leave everything behind to follow someone, that's the type of person that it would need to be. That's the type of person I want to follow because that's the type of person I want to become. And there was one other key question that I said I'd want answered if I was going to follow someone. And that was what happens to people who follow him? You know, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, hopefully you can get to know some of the other people here who are Christians and you can watch them and learn the answers from their lives. Like how does being a Christian change these people sitting around me? But just for the sake of this sermon, let's look at these four men in this passage and think about how following Jesus changes them, right? In today's passage, they all start out as humble fishermen and they follow Jesus for about three years throughout his ministry And to be honest, they seem like they don't make a lot of progress during those three years. Like there's one point, a couple years down the road, James and John, they're following Jesus. Jesus wants to go into this city to stay there and teach there for a little bit. And the city's like, no, you can't come in. And so you know what James and John do? They're like, hey, Jesus, how about we call down some fire from heaven and just wipe them off the map? Just a little bit vindictive, you know? Or another time, James and John, they get their mom to come talk to Jesus on their behalf and be like, hey, Jesus, you know what would be a really good idea? When you're on your throne, the seat to your left, give it to James. The seat to your right, give it to John. They're going to be your best right-hand men. Just a little bit self-seeking, you know? Or Peter, the, the, <clears throat> the first time that Jesus shares with his disciples that he's going to die, Peter's like, no way, never going to happen. And Jesus rebukes him and calls him Satan. And then on the night that Jesus is arrested, Peter, not once, not twice, but three times lies and says he has never met Jesus because he's too ashamed to be associated with him. So three years into following Jesus, and these guys, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they are vindictive. They are self-promoting. They are opposing God's plan and they are incredibly fearful. Not looking very promising, is it? But Jesus dies. He raises from the dead. The Holy Spirit comes and fills these men, and everything changes. Just a few weeks after Peter has denied three times that he's ever met Jesus, 
Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he stands up in front of a crowd of the same people who killed Jesus. And he starts telling them about how Jesus is God. And oh, by the way, you guys killed God. It's pretty bold. And he speaks so powerfully that 3,000 of them trust in Jesus in that one day. I, I can't imagine being that bold and fearless. These disciples, they become fearless like Jesus was. At one point, Peter and John, they're arrested for preaching about Jesus. And they put them on trial. And Peter gets a turn to make his defense. And rather than being like, I'm so sorry, it won't happen again, whatever. You know what he does while he's on trial for being arrested for preaching about Jesus? He stands up and preaches about Jesus to the people who arrested him. And then they let Peter and James go. They're like, we'll let you go, but you have to promise that you won't preach about Jesus anymore. And you know the first thing Peter and, and John do? They go have a prayer meeting where they're like, God, please give us boldness to keep preaching boldly and faithfully. <laughs> One more time, the disciples are all arrested for following Jesus. An angel appears in the middle of the night, opens their prison cells. They walk out and you know what they're doing first thing in the morning, the day after being arrested for following Jesus. They're preaching out in public for everyone to hear this message. There is nothing that can stop them. They're bold and fearless, just like Jesus. They go from being terrified nobodies to being bold, fearless warriors. It's such a drastic change that out of these four men, three of them end up being killed because of their trust in Jesus. And the fourth one, it's not like he was uh, being more shy about it or anything. They tried to kill him. He just wouldn't die. They boiled him alive and he came out of it still alive, right? Like <laughs> it's nuts. And, and if hearing that, like, oh, all four of these guys sort of got killed for this makes you be like, nope, I'm out. Don't want to follow him. That's not a, not a path that I want to go on. Recognize these men were so transformed by Jesus that even the prospect of dying for him did not scare them. Each of them had the opportunity to be released. They'd just be like, it's all a lie. Forget it. Just let me live. I'm so sorry. They wouldn't do that. They couldn't say that because they knew it was true. Jesus is God. Jesus rose from the dead and they were so transformed by following him that they couldn't be scared even by death itself. Isn't that the type of person that you want to be? Someone so bold and fearless that even death itself can't scare you? That's what happens to people who truly follow Jesus. And Jesus' invitation to you and me today is the same as it was to these men. Follow me. It might be scary. It might involve risk. It might involve sacrifice. It's going to require continuous repentance and turning from the things that pull us away from God. Moment by moment, day by day, turning back and placing our trust back in God again. But he's inviting us to do that because that's where true life comes from. And just like he did for these men, Jesus promises you and me that, that if we will do this, if we will follow him, he's going to work powerfully in us and through us so that others can join his kingdom as well. That's what he means when he tells Peter and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The people who, who commit their lives to wholeheartedly following Jesus and enter into this new way of living, they can't help but be contagious to the people around them. They can't help but show everyone else how wonderful 
life in God's kingdom truly is, and they can't help but drawing others into that kingdom with them. So we see in today's passage, Jesus is moving forward in his ministry. And he's still moving forward today through his spirit in the church and in our world. And just like he did with these men, he's inviting you and me to follow him. But it's going to require sacrifice from us. It's going to require risk taking from us. But it's worth it because Jesus is utterly unique and extraordinary. There's no one like him. So will you follow him this week? Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you because there is no one like you. There's no one else who's worth leaving everything to follow with our lives. There's no one else who can create the changes in us that you can create in us. And God, I think I speak for everyone here when I say that I know there are things inside me that aren't the way that I want them to be. There are places that I need to grow. There are places that I need to be different than I am right now. And I know the solution is not just trying harder to do better, but it's in letting you transform me from the inside out. And so I pray for each of us here today that we would follow you this week, that we would live as citizens of your kingdom this week, that we would trust in your teaching and join you in the work that you're doing in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.